Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts. Brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Jonathan Kaufman of Emory University, Atlanta, US, and Francesca Guy from the University of Turin, Italy. Hi, my name is Jonathan Kaufman. I'm an associate professor of hematology and medical oncology at the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, United States. And I'd like to uh, hand it over to Dr. Guy to introduce herself. Hello everyone, I'm Francesca Guy, Associate Professor in Hematology in the University of Torino, Italy. Okay, so we are discussing today the best partner with lenalidomide as maintenance therapy. Yeah, I think this is a great topic and a topic of interest. Um, and it's uh, definitely something that uh, that is new if we consider that now we are using, we have been using lenalidomide for years and years and uh, is the, I believe, uh, the only uh, standard of care approved everywhere, almost in, in many, many countries. So that is now considered a backbone for uh, newer maintenance strategies. Yeah. Uh, so I think, um, I mean, uh, uh, we have to consider the data that we have recently with the use of proteasome inhibitors, portezomib first, carfizomib, and also maybe the potential use of monoclonal antibodies in in your future. What do you right. think, John? Well, I, uh, I mean, we are very, first of all, um, you know, the congratulations on the, the most recent data from the Forte study. And, and, and as, as you know, I've said for years now, it's, this is what the third year in the row where you guys have presented. And I've said for years now that this is, uh, this is the most practice defining um, study um, in all of myeloma over, over the past three years. And um, we're really excited about the maintenance data that you showed. And as you probably know, we uh, instituted for our high-risk patients a combination of letalidomide and bortezomib in, in high-risk patients because at the time we were, we were using lenalidomide for high-risk patients and we were so um, disappointed in the length of time the patients were remaining in remission and outside, quite frankly, outside of a clinical trial, really using the clinical trials that demonstrated benefit of lenalidomide in maintenance. And then the Hovon study that was very clear in demonstrating um, the benefit of bortezomib um, as part of maintenance therapy, particularly in the high-risk patients, we, we as a practice made that change and initially published our data, um, single arm, um, uh, really, uh, a retrospective review of a practice pattern in uh, 2014 showing uh, much better results than we would predict with the combination. And um, earlier this year, we now published our um, longer, much longer term experience with our high risk patients and, um, and, and that's and showed um, approximately a, let me just uh, get that here, in our high risk patients, um, we had about a 40-month progression-free survival with using the combination. And so um, we've always been believers, at least in high risk, 
of the combination of proteasome inhibitors and IMIDs. And that's why I was, we were just absolutely so excited to see your data confirm that. Yeah, so I think what you have done with the studies and the data of continuous fortezomib and lenalidomide treatment in maintenance is uh, uh, really important because it shows how the combination of two drugs and a continuous approach is helpful in these patients because we all know that the, the, the major benefit for these patients is at the time of first line therapy. Uh, and sometimes uh, patients that are high risk uh, that relapse uh, early or, I mean, they unfortunately have a very, very poor outcome. So I think uh, your pivotal experience with the combination of bortezomib and lenalidomide was absolutely great with, uh, great, uh, with great data. And um, building on it, uh, you know, we, we evaluated uh, more recently uh, the carfizomib and lenalidomide combination compared with lenalidomide, showing that uh, two drugs, again, are better than one, which is, to me, not so so unexpected. Uh, but uh, again, we have to understand if this could be the treatment of choice for all patients or for a specific group right. of patients. And definitely in this, uh, this regard, high risk are the current unmet medical needs. So probably the patients that might benefit more from an approach like this, because I think we both have experience of what could be the long-term also toxicities of combination agents. So uh, we have to, to discuss with the patient the benefit of using one drug or two drugs uh, in terms also of short and long-term toxicity. So wh what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, and that's the exact conversation um, that we had. When we, when we did this for the high-risk patients, um, we, it, when high-risk patients were always willing to accept a higher level of side effects or more inconvenience because the downside is so much worse rapid progression dying from myeloma in the standard and we and we all and we predicted that if we had done the same with standard risk patients that we would have had the outcome that the randomized study showed but the standard risk patients is a much more as you as you said a much more difficult conversation because you really have to balance um the short-term and, and long-term the, the short-term toxicities with the long-term benefits and with our hypothesis that the that the um, standard risk patients um, would um, would have less tolerance of side effects, and we would have less tolerance of side effects, and we and and they're much less likely when they relapse to relapse in an uncontrolled and dangerous way. They're much more likely, not all of them, but much more likely to relapse with the same standard risk disease, and hence we could catch up later. Yeah, I totally agree. But in this regard, I have a question for you that is uh, related to the tolerability and also, I think, uh, to the acceptance of treatment by the patient that is the length of therapy. Because again, this is uh, something we always have to discuss with a patient. That is, you propose a combination. So, ba so basically, you propose a higher toxicity also. You have to keep in to to keep into account this, but uh, it's always tricky also to discuss the length of this therapy in terms of compliance right. and so on. So, and again, in high-risk patients, it is tricky because uh, 
on one hand, you are maybe, at least my experience is that you, you would like to continue indefinitely because you think this treatment is working. So do I have to de-escalate? But on the other hand, there's the patient that is saying, I don't want to come continuously to the hospital. So can we balance? And, and we are lacking many data. So in this regard, I, I'd like to know what is your yeah. experience as well. Yeah, yeah. So we found, at least when we were using um, bortezomib sub-Q, that um, we were using the three out of four week sub-Q bortezomib. And we found that we could, um, and we asked for patients to do that for three years. Um, and we found in, in the patients who, um, who, didn't, who didn't progress in that time frame, probably about two out of three, maybe three out of four patients made it the full three years. And so, but, um, and, I, and I think if I remember correctly, that your study was two years of the, of the maintenance. And I, and I think, um, you know, I mean, two years, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to come every, you know, twice a month for, you know, three years to the hospital or the infusion center. Um, you know, I'd like to see, you know, we've had, again, a a practice experience using exasimib as an oral replacement. And I'd love to see, I'd love to see the same data. Um, I'm not sure we can extrapolate from carfilzomib, the data you show with carfilzomib or the data we previously showed with bortezomib. I'm not sure we can extrapolate to exasimib. Yeah, I think this is true. I mean, uh, um, it would be nice uh, if we can at least shift from one intravenous or subcutaneous protosome inhibitor to an oral protosome inhibitor because the compliance issue will be better. We need to see if the data are superimposable or not. There were studies also that explore the combinations in the maintenance setting, but Still, I think the, the, the data and the evidence is limited. Anyway, there are data showing also the efficacy of exazomib plus LAN in high-risk patients. So potentially this could be a good strategy to improve the compliance because I, we faced the same issue with the, that you faced with portezomib, with carfizomib was the same. It is difficult to convince a patient that he, he or she has to come continuously to the hospital twice, uh, twice right. a, a month. So in the end, uh, what we uh, propose as two-year fixed duration of carfizomib, but continuous lenalidomide was what we thought could be reasonable in terms of long-term disease control. Uh, we have also to consider, I think, that also with lenalidomide, you, the label is until progression, but then in yeah. the end, the, the actual proportion of patients that can continue until progression is not the majority of them because some sort of adverse events occur right. and uh, and then there is those reduction and so on. So uh, the length of therapy and maintenance, even with lenalidomide, is something that is not completely solved, to my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I, just to make one comment on that, you know, in the, in the meta-analysis randomized lenalidomide versus placebo trials, average length of maintenance was two years. Yeah. And if you look at our data, our, our, what we call our RVD 1,000, our 1,000 consecutive patients treated with RVD and then LEN maintenance, and it was planned to progression, um, the median time was closer to five years. 
So if um, I, th you know, again, um, and our practice was, was always to treatment to progression. Um, this isn't really the topic of this conversation and maybe we can have another conversation, but we've started um, using, um, start, we've started at least using MRD to help us limit the amount of time of lenalidomide maintenance, which is a perfect segue for uh, discussing other drugs to use to increase MRD negativity. And uh, that's the presentation that I just had at ASH and looking at the Griffin study. And in really the focus of my presentation, and just I'll review the, the Griffin study was a phase, is, is a relatively small randomized study. It was about a 200 patient study, randomized phase two of standard RBD, auto, consolidation with two more cycles of RBD and then land maintenance versus all the same treatment with daratumab added at induction consolidation and for two years of maintenance. So they ended up getting uh, 24 more doses of daratum monthly daratumab uh, after consolidation. And um, what, we, what we showed here is in this study is that um, over time, um, the stringent CR rate, the CR rate and the stringent CR rate increase uh, really more um, in the DARA arm than in the, the non-DARA arm. And we see um, six months and 12 months um, after, um, uh, after maintenance therapy that the MRD negativity rate continues to increase. And so, it, you know, it, it's really, it's really interesting. We now, it, it's, it's a smaller study and all we have is a, is an endpoint of MRD negativity. We don't have the PFS endpoint yet that, that we have with the combination of lenalidomide and carfilzomib, uh, but the, at least the MRD negativity rate looks uh, very promising. Yeah, I think you raised a very important issue that is what is the first, what is the partner for lenalidomide in the long-term maintenance therapy? And second, the role of the partner drug to increase the rate of MRD negativity. So in our study, uh, we showed that carfizumib and lenalidomide was superior to lenalidomide alone in terms of PFS, but we also saw that there was a higher proportion of patients that were MRD positive at the uh, time of randomization to maintenance that turned MRD negative with carfizumib yeah. and len compared with len. So these highlight out using two drugs so you can get into MRD negativity. And of course, MRD negativity is important in all patients, but data from the Yamano 2 from other studies showed how high-risk patients are the ones that benefit most from MRD negativity because this can improve their outcome. Uh, and of course, DARA is another great uh, drug that uh, has very few toxicity and can be used continuously uh, in the treatment. And I think the data that you showed of Griffin with the continuous improvement in the rate of response, but more importantly, the depth of response are incredibly important also, also in this way. In this regard, I think it's uh, nice also to to mention the data that have been uh, uh, presented in the non-transplant setting related to the efficacy of Daralen uh, in the Maya study in high risk that uh, may somehow also highlight how 
also the monoclonal antibody could be could maybe be considered as continuous treatment approach in the yeah. elderly. Then there are studies that are combining Daralen versus Len, but still as maintenance, we do not have data yet. Right. And now, and I think there's a really important study um, that the one you mentioned. Uh, also incorporates uh, MRD negativity and randomized discontinuation, which I think is really critical. And um, and and, I, and one of the reasons that we have moved towards adding uh, daratumumab to our induction is to increase the post-transplant MRD negativity rate with the subsequent hypothesis that if you can uh, cut short the post-transplant maintenance time without losing any long-term benefits, um, then your then your your total time, your total cost, and your total time of care uh, will act, could actually be less, even if you're doing more upfront. And um, when and we as a group are currently analyzing all of the data that came out from Ash, and um, and going to make practice decisions about how we're going, if and when we're going to modify our uh, standard um, risk patient um, maintenance approach. Multiple Myeloma Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.